Well, join with me this morning in Luke chapter 12. We'll be finishing chapter 12 in the Gospel of Luke as we continue through our series. We will be looking this morning at verses 54 through 59. The title of our sermon this morning is Being Right with God, and our key words are time, interpret, and judge. Now, if we've learned anything over the past few months as a people living in South Georgia, it's that we might every now and then get a little bit of rain. On average, for the entire year in Savannah, Georgia, we receive 49 and a half inches of rain. So far this year, and it's only August, we've received 44 inches of rain. It's been a bit wet. It's been a bit of a common theme for us. I've always been someone who's fascinated with the weather. It's really interesting to watch it go from a really beautiful blue sky without anything out there to see. And then in a very short period of time, the dark, ominous clouds roll in. And they come in quickly and you just know it's about to dump gallons of water upon the earth. And almost inevitably, we know that it's coming, don't we? We see the change in the sky. We see the fast moving clouds. They weren't even there before, but now they're overhead. The humidity increases. The the very smell of the air changes. Perhaps you've been some time, I think it's most dramatic when you're on the beach near the ocean and you see the clouds rolling in from the water and you can actually see it raining before it comes to you. It's an amazing sight. And no matter where you live in the world, it's very common for the people who live there to simply look at the sky and be able to predict with a very high level of certainty what the weather is going to bring, at least within the next hour or so. In fact, it it regularly becomes a part of our daily conversations, doesn't it? Looks like rain. Yep, sure does. Lord knows my garden needs it. Well, in this morning's text, Jesus picks up on this very common human experience, the conversations about the weather. And he uses it to point to the hypocrisy of the crowds that are gathered in his midst. They all seem to be fine meteorologists, but they've missed the right interpretation of the present time because they've failed to see the proper signs. Let's see what he's talking about beginning in verse 54 of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You see, the crowds of people knew all too well that they could look out across the Mediterranean Sea, and they would see the rising clouds. They would cry out immediately, A shower is coming! 
Rain was on its way. Likewise, they could feel the wind blowing in across the Arabian desert. And they were ensured that a wave of scorching heat was about to roll through. And for the most part, their expectations were almost always realized. They became like citizens of Effingham County on an August afternoon. Well, here come the clouds again. Better make sure all the windows are closed. I say Al Roker's got nothing on a Rinkin resident. You people know your weather. No need to watch some guy sitting in New York City telling you that it's going to rain in a few hours. But this is the case of people all over the world, right? Wherever you live, you learn to discern the natural things going on around you. But Jesus turns this reality to the lives of the people to reveal the very dark clouds that loomed over the hearts of those surrounding him. We see this in verse 56. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So while all of the people were very skilled, whether men and women, they failed miserably in interpreting the spiritual climate of the world around them. Now, in order for us to entirely grasp exactly what's going on, it's important to remember who exactly Jesus is talking to. He's surrounded, it says, by the crowds. Well, who were the crowds? It was the Jewish people. These are people who have spent their entire lives studying the Hebrew Scriptures, people who are supposedly looking and waiting for the coming of the Messiah who is spoken of repeatedly in the Old Testament. So Jesus points out to them that they are missing the very thing, the signs that every pious Jew should immediately recognize. That Jesus Christ, the very one who is speaking these words, the one who is standing before them, it was he who is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures that they had read and known and studied their entire lives. In that hour, in their midst, that time that was foretold was being fulfilled. The center of history was unfolding right before their eyes. And they were all missing it. Their hearts were darkened. Their eyes were blinded. Their ears were deafened. Their discernment was gone. They completely missed all of the signs of the moral and spiritual storm that had blown in. And they pay no attention to the rising clouds of great spiritual thunderstorm that was brewing on the horizon for all of them to see. But the eyes of their hearts, the eyes of their souls were closed and they wandered around in complete inability to be able to utilize their senses. Now, most of us probably think about the Jewish people in Jesus' day and think it's shocking that any of the Jews could have seen the work of Jesus or heard his teaching and yet reject him as the Messiah. It seems absolutely improbable. The evidence before them was as vivid as the storm clouds or the scorching heat, yet they resisted him anyway. But what exactly was the evidence? that they were failing to see in their rejection of Jesus Christ. Well, first, 
It was his character. Jesus was and is the fullness of perfection. He is the embodiment of all wisdom, compassion, mercy, and love. Jesus never spoke a word in unrighteous anger. He never did a deed out of selfish gain or ambition, but he always and in every way perfectly fulfilled righteousness as prescribed to him by the Father, assigned to him as the Son in eternity past. The prophet Zechariah prophesied of the coming Messiah who would be the righteous fulfillment of all that God required. The prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They also missed the evidence of Jesus' miracles. In front of many witnesses, Jesus gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave the ability to walk to those who were lame. He gave people life from the dead. He made enough food from five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men and their families. He healed countless thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people of various infirmities by the simple touch of his hand or the words of his voice. The prophet Isaiah made known that the coming of the Messiah would bring many miracles. Then the eyes of the blind should be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. They also missed the evidence of Jesus' teaching. As we looked at last time in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' teaching was singularly focused on himself as the true Messiah, the divine Savior of mankind. He was full of wisdom. They'd never heard wisdom like they had heard from Jesus before because he was the full embodiment of all true wisdom. All of the Proverbs, all of the wisdom of the Old Testament spoke of Jesus Christ. No doubt in his teaching, the people were hearing expositions of the Old Testament, the Hebrew texts in ways that they never heard before. So much so that the people noted time and time again, and we see it throughout the Gospels, saying that Jesus speaks as no one we have ever heard speak before. But what was it about his teaching primarily? What's well, the, the last thing that they missed in terms of evidence? And that is Jesus's authority. You see, Jesus taught and Jesus worked with an authority as had never been seen before. His preaching was with the full authority of God. He cast out demons and he sent Satan away. The demons were afraid of him. They were subject to him. He instantly calmed the wind and the waves in the midst of a storm, showing his absolute authority over weather patterns. He confronted the lawyers and the Pharisees and revealed their corrupt hearts, even at times speaking to the very unspoken thoughts. You see, all of these things... 
were foretold. All of them were known to be aspects of the life and the ministry of the Messiah. And the Jews had heard it over and over and over again. They heard it as recently as from the prophet, the greatest prophet, John the Baptist. And then they had Jesus himself announce all of these things to be true. He was able to prove it through his life and through his work. And yet they continued to reject him. And so Jesus asks, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? In other words, why can you not see it? It is very clearly displayed before you. But you see, the reality is that they didn't want to interpret the present time as it related to their spiritual state. In fact, they were completely unwilling to even try. If they spent even half the amount of time on the spiritual matters of the heart as a people that they did on the meteorological patterns of Palestine, perhaps they would see the truth of who Jesus was. They would have been prepared as he came. Now, of course, there certainly were those who did recognize Jesus for who he was and is. And we've seen a few of those people throughout the Gospel of Luke. But by and large, the vast majority of the people were foolishly rejecting the truth that was present before them. But today, the situation is very much the same, isn't it? We talk about the weather and sports scores and statistics. Hollywood celebrities, new gadgets, gizmos, movies, television shows, music, clothes and fashion, cars and purses and hairstyle and the stock market and savings plans and retirement accounts and on and on and on and on. But how often do we take the time to consider life beyond the superficial, temporary things of this life? to consider the full weight of what God has set before us in Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting any of these things that I've mentioned are wrong or evil or that we shouldn't discuss them from time to time. But the question is, what are we consumed by? Brothers and sisters, we live among a people, the vast majority the vast majority of our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and family members are gripped by a God-ignoring, God-belittling frame of mind. And they're absolutely consumed by all the things of this world. I listened to an interview this week. It was of John Piper, and he said this, Whenever the strength of God is not recognized as the source of our strength, we are breaking the first commandment. Do not have any gods before me. And that's the main problem in America today. The absence of God in most spheres of life is perceived to be normal. And even Christians feel it as normal, which is why absorbing the culture around us and its priorities is so dangerous. Brothers, do you get depressed and down and start dragging around the house and waking up blue when your favorite sports team loses a big game the night before? But you neglect the means of grace with little or no concern each day about what needs to be done that we might make progress in our sanctification? 
Are we spending time digging out pennies from between the couch cushions or going into deeper debt to buy an electronic device or some outfit we just have to have from the store? but neglecting to generously and sacrificially give toward the gospel ministry of Christ church. Brothers and sisters, as with every generation of Christians to have ever lived, we are very prone to paying a lot more attention to the winds blowing in from the West than we are to the state of our souls and the souls of those around us and for those to whom we are responsible. Parents, what do we spend our time doing with our children? Are we watching hours and hours of television with them, but not taking 20 minutes or so to teach them from the scriptures and to pray with them because the time has fled away and it's time to go to bed? Husbands, are you taking the time to nurture and care for the soul of your wife or are you lazily turning turning everything off, sitting on the couch because you're tired at the end of a long day. Students, children, are you more concerned about the latest and greatest trends? More concerned than you are about knowing what God has called you to and setting an example for believers in speech, in love, in truth, and in purity. Cultural observers have been pointing for years to the reality that we are a people in our culture who are literally amusing ourselves to death. One of my favorite writers, he's not a Christian, but he wrote a book with the title, Amusing Ourselves to Death. His name is Neil Postman. And 20 or 30 years ago, he was writing things that were were pertinent and even more pertinent today. But in the introduction to his his book, he compared the writings of two other non-Christian thinkers who were very keenly aware of the consequences of the lifestyle and the decisions being made by the people in our culture who were prone to grope for things that we are so readily seeking in our culture. He compares George Orwell's book, 1984, with the writings of Aldous Huxley with his book, Brave New World. Here's what Postman Postman writes about these two. We were keeping our eye on 1984. And when the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise to themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held, and wherever else the terror had happened, we, at least, had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, brave new world. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there there would be no reason to ban books, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared 
those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egotism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain, but in Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us, but Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. The inside of these men is absolutely profound. And so intensely true that it's chilling. You see, brothers and sisters, our main problem is not that we have a tendency to get too bent around the axle about making sure our lives are lived in holy reverence to God. Our problem most often is we've nearly forgotten that God is holy and worthy of reverence at all. The life of the average evangelical is like that of those the Apostle Paul was dealing with in Romans. Upon hearing the gospel of free grace offered to sinful men, their response was, well, then let's just sin all that we can so that grace may abound all the more. And Paul looked to these men and said, by no means, by no means. We're not talking about being legalistic here. We're not talking about infringing on one's liberties. And I know my own heart well enough that I know that when I begin to have things about my life questioned by others and my lifestyle and what I do and don't spend my time doing, my initial reaction is to accuse someone else of legalism. But could it be possibly that we're so in love with all of the things around us that we've forgotten to consider what God requires of us? Are we truly interpreting the present time? Are we looking at all that is before us in Jesus Christ? Or are we too focused on shiny objects and storefront windows? We are very much a people like the Jews in Jesus' day, aren't we? Do we plan our lives around the weather but ignore the catastrophic tsunami of God's judgment that lies ahead? Peter said that most people do. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7, we read, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth are now that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The winds are there, and if we are willing to observe them, 
They give ample evidence of the coming judgment of God. But it's a fact that most people prefer to ignore or deny altogether. And so we have a world culture that, despite the witness of the church, rejects the good news that Christ died for their sins, that he was resurrected on the third day, and instead is calling good evil and evil good, worshiping money and power and glorifying perversions and turning what God has given as a gift into a sick means of personal fulfillment. A world culture that makes heroes of villains, segregates and marginalizes the poor, kills almost 4,000 unwanted children every single day, and worships self as the measure of all things. Now, we're certainly not unique as a people compared to the numerous nations who have risen and fallen throughout the history of the world. But if there's any strange illusion remaining in any of our minds that we, the people, actually believe what our money and license plates say, in God we trust, we've certainly failed to interpret the present time and the world that we live in. Let us not forget that nations are made up of people with corrupt and sinful hearts, naturally bent toward the rejection of God's moral law. And it was no different in Jesus' day. We know that even after Jesus was crucified and resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, that Israel was given nearly 40 more years to repent until, upon no repentance, the wrath of God fell upon Jerusalem in 70 AD. They fell by the sword. People were either killed or deported to all the surrounding nations. The city was trampled by the Gentiles, just as was prophesied to happen in Luke chapter 21. And so Jesus makes an appeal to the people all around him in light of the coming judgment. Look at verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Can you hear it in Jesus' words? Why, O people, have you closed off your hearts to all that stands before you? Why have you rejected what is right? Why have you turned away from me? You see, this is Jesus' appeal to sinners. And, And friends, some of you have ignored what is before you, clearly presented in Jesus Christ. Some of you young people may have heard the gospel many times. You've seen the Christian life lived out before you day by day by day in your home and in this church. And while we readily admit that we fail sometimes, and sometimes we show ourselves to be hypocritical, we also recognize that Jesus is a perfect Savior who's provided a perfect sacrifice for imperfect, broken people like us. For you who has heard the gospel, you have no excuse to continue in your sin. You have no excuse to continue in darkness. You have no excuse to reject the gospel. The only good news that sets you free from the bondage of sin and death and all the evil desires of your heart. Let me ask you, Can you see in your life a perfection like the righteousness of Jesus Christ 
making you fit for heaven so that you can confidently stand before God, the judge. Whose righteousness, whose perfection, whose works do you want to stand upon on the day of judgment? Your own or those of the perfect fulfiller of the law of God? Which way of judgment is more suited to the justice and absolute holiness of God? accepting the flawed works and the flawed attempts and selfish endeavors to fulfill what God has required on your own, even though you have fallen far short of what he has stated? Does accepting you on those grounds equate with justice and a perfect holiness? Or is it more suited with God's justice and holiness that he would accept you on the basis of a perfect righteousness? a righteousness from Christ. The law of God being perfectly fulfilled, the penalty of sins of God's people being completely paid for, and the sins of mankind being washed away with the flood of the blood of Jesus. Friends, there will not be one single sin unaccounted for before God. And there are only two options. Either you are in Christ and Jesus has paid the penalty for every one of your sins, having received the wrath of God due to us upon himself, or you will spend eternity paying the penalty for your sins, condemned and separated from God and his people eternally. So Jesus highlights this reality, but he also provides the great Remedy. Look at verses 58 and 59. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So Jesus presents the remedy for our sin through a little parable where he is portrayed as the accuser and God the Father as the judge or the magistrate. Now there's a huge underlying assumption in what Jesus is saying here. All of us, every single one of us is a sinner, right? Isn't that what we see here? Look again. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, there isn't a question as to whether or not you will. It is an absolute. You will go before the magistrate. And it is very important for all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, to understand that we are sinners before a holy God. I I remember several years ago, I was having a conversation with my grandmother She had listened to a CD of one of my sermons. Now my grandmother, she's almost 90 years old. She spent her entire life going to church, and I do believe that she is a Christian, that she very much loves Jesus. However, something she has never been accused of is being a tremendous encouragement. She is, let's just say, very helpful in pointing out areas that she thinks are inaccuracies in the things you might say or do. So she said to me, you said in that sermon that we sin every day. I don't sin every day. I don't sin very often at all. 
So I asked her, Grandma, do you think the Apostle Paul was a godly man who sought to live a holy life before God? Well, yes, of course. Well, do you know that he called himself the chief of sinners and that he said in Romans 7 that he was constantly in a battle against his flesh because the things he wanted to do, he could not do, but the things he did not want to do, he continued to do because of the sin in his life. You see, my grandmother was thinking of big ticket sin items in her life. I don't kill, I don't lie, I'm faithful to my husband. But what I was able to discern from our conversation is that she wasn't thinking, but I do constantly struggle with pride. I do covet. I am discontent sometimes. I show a lack of faith and trust in the Lord's provision. I'm prone to grumbling and complaining. You see, my grandmother is a sinner. But I know my own heart, and I can tell you that if there were teams for sinners, I'd be a first-round draft pick for the varsity squad, and she might be sitting on the bench on the C team, just like I did when I tried to play basketball in seventh grade. Listen, God doesn't make me any less of a sinner than anyone else because I'm a pastor. In fact, the more I study God's Word every single day, the more I'm convinced of just how wretched my heart really is. And the only difference between me and some of you is that I'm a Christian. And as a result, I have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling within me so that I have everything that's necessary to obey God's word. But my flesh is still at odds with who I am as a new person, a new creature in Jesus Christ. However, Christ has died in my place. Christ has died to set me free from the penalty of sin and death that I might thankfully and joyfully live in obedience to what God commands. Turning to God in repentance whenever I sin, knowing that I am cleansed and made right because of Jesus. So you see what Jesus is identifying is the reality that every one of us is guilty Every one of us is headed for judgment. And the only reasonable thing for us to do is to settle out of court before we face the only verdict that can be rendered 100% absolutely, without a shred of a doubt, guilty. Outside of repentance of sin and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are enemies of God in our heart of hearts. And the full depth of our awareness of our sin comes after we become Christians because the Holy Spirit continues to convict us of that sin, our lack of righteousness and the judgment of God. Martin Luther expressed this conflict in the lives of Christians between the spirit and the, and the flesh, and it's now a famous Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. It means at the same time justified and a sinner. That's who we are. Because he knew that though he had been given righteousness from God by faith, he still sinned daily. But this understanding led Martin Luther to cast himself in desperate dependence upon God. 
The scriptures speak of such a state as a blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, what is the believer mourning over? What is Jesus talking about in the Sermon on the Mount here? We're mourning over our sins. Graced people mourn their sins while the lost do not acknowledge their guilt, nor even care about what obedience looks like. But those who heed Jesus' little parable know they are guilty sinners. They have judged for themselves what is right. They know the wrath of God abides on their souls. So they are going to court where they will surely be found guilty. And so they wisely seek to settle out of court. And Jesus' call to every man, woman, and child who have ever lived is to settle things in this life so that our lives will not come to the court of final judgment where it will be too late to find salvation. Elsewhere, Jesus tells us simply and straightforwardly how this can be done. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. So you see, Jesus has told us that if we can read the weather in the sky, we should also read the spiritual weather in our own lives. And the spiritual winds that are blowing tell us that the judgment of God is coming and maybe very, very soon. It may be a national judgment or a localized judgment. It may be the great day of the Lord, the final judgment and disposition of life. Judgment may be wrought this very day on your own personal death. In any event, the storm of judgment awaits the unbelieving, unrepentant soul. So to use Jesus' words, why don't you judge for yourself what is right? Are you going with your adversary to the magistrate? Try hard to be reconciled to him on the way. Settle out of court. If you've never come to Christ, do you want to settle up with him now? Do you want eternal life in Jesus Christ? Hear these words. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. If you are without Christ, I commend a great Savior to you. Settled now on the way for Jesus' coming to judge the world. And if you are in Christ, rejoice. Rejoice in what God has accomplished on your behalf in Jesus Christ that we can stand before him on the day of judgment and when all of our works are laid out before us, he will look us in the eye and on the account of Jesus having taken our place, he will say, not guilty. Not guilty. Enter the joy of your master. Not guilty. Is there any greater news for the believer who knows the wretched, vile nature of their own heart? Not 
guilty. Praise God.